0: The title for this passage I call Fighting Fear. We're going to have three points by the time we're done. But Fighting Fear, you might think that's a strange title for this passage, but I'm going to demonstrate to you why. And I'm going to read the passage for you once again. Remember, I put emphasis on certain syllables because I want you to hear and concentrate on those particular statements, all right? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him, Jesus, who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Now, I've got several observations as I explain these three issues to you. The first is found in the very first verse of this last paragraph of Romans chapter 8. The first half of the verse says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And notice it repeats again in the last verse of the paragraph. It's like God made a sandwich out of this paragraph. The bun on top, to separate the bun on the bottom, to separate. And it's because, I want to focus on this word, because the Greeks uh, tell stories with their words. They're very precise and very explicit. I think that's why God chose that Greek language at that time to inspire and give us the New Testament. Um, this particular word, to separate, think of two limits, two objects that are at their limits. Here's the story of this verse, this statement, to separate. There is no space between the two limits. Imagine a rope with two ends. Two limits, but it's as if the rope doesn't even exist. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, nothing gets between these two limits. Jesus and you, me. Isn't that cool? See how the verse tells a story? I also noticed this. Did you notice there are two lists? There's two lists, just two. Well, the first list, notice, is about fighting fears in our world. The second list is about fighting fears in the next world. Isn't that cool? What does it mean? What does it mean? And it's kind of spooky, which is appropriate for this time of year. Let's go after fighting fears in our world. And I want to point out a couple items on this list and give you their original meaning. Tribulation, for example. I love how they story through story explain what they mean. By tribulation, it's something that literally presses together like, like a pressure cooker. Tribulation. Distress, <laughs> this is a description of a narrow place. If you are claustrophobic. You can identify with this idea of distress. And then look at number seven, the sword. It's very possible that this is, Paul may not have known it, but this is a prophetic statement that Paul's making that he's going to remember one day. Because the emperor Nero, somewhere around AD 64, Finds out that he's a Roman citizen, hates him, hates him, by the way, but finds out he's a Roman citizen. If he wasn't a Roman citizen, he would have been soaked in tar, perhaps, and used to light up the Colosseum, as gross as that is. He might have been quartered four horses with ropes around his four appendages and just split up in four pieces. He might have been disemboweled. But no, he's a Roman citizen, so he's got to die quick and painlessly. So Nero ordered him to be beheaded. And there was a sword that was used to behead him. But I want to focus on number three, persecution. I need to focus on this because as Americans... We're not acquainted with this. Think about it. We've had 300 years of relative experience without persecution, except if you're black and we're made to be a slave and the audacious things that happened during that first half of our experience. But for the most part, we are not experiencing persecution. Write down two things for you to check out if you want Fox's Book of Martyrs. He lives in the 10th, 11th century. Believe it or not, I read this as a kid as bedtime reading. It was <laughs> it's nuts. But but um he thinks that these martyrs are the ultimate of love for Jesus and so he goes to record them from all the way from James out to when he's living. That's a worth a read. And I want you to look into Voice of the Martyrs online. It is (laughs) www.persecution.com. You need to see how much of this world is being persecuted, is being persecuted with hostile experiences, the kind of experience that makes a martyr of you. The Romans had 209 different deities. Look it up online. You can read all about them. It's as if they didn't want to offend any deity. So they wanted to remember them all. Caesar Augustus, the one who ordered the census that took Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem, that Augustus. Before he died, they thought he was supernatural. They thought he was deity. So by the time he died in AD 14, they decided that the Caesar should be a god, a deity. And that's when divine worship of the Caesars began. By the time you get to AD 90, there's a guy by the name, a Caesar, by the name of Domitian or Domitian. Um, He decided, as he should be worshipped, as all the Caesars should be worshipped, he decides that one day a year, only one day a year, everybody in the Roman Empire Has to step into the temple and on that day declare Domitian God. Your first century brothers and sisters refused to do it. They understood Romans 10 to mean this. If you confess your lips, with your lips, that Jesus is Lord, You will be saved. They were so committed to that idea that they were committed to making sure that they would not recognize Caesar as God and rather recognize Jesus as Lord. And so they would declare as they went into the temple, thousands of them would declare Thank you, Lord, for today we are martyrs in heaven. And they were executed. And it wasn't pretty. They were lit up for the Colosseum. They were devoured by animals (laughs) in the Colosseum. Gross stuff when you think about it. Look at verse 36. This is strange. This observation, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That is a verse right out of Romans. I'm sorry, Psalm 44 and verse 22. It's snatched right out of the Old Testament and stuck in here. It's kind of weird, isn't it? Just thrown in here at this point. Why did Paul stick that in there? I have a theory for whose sake, who benefits from the killing and the slaughtering? Who benefits from that? I've got three possibilities. One, it's possible that Paul is saying to God, for your sake, for your sake, we're killed and considered slaughtered as sheep. Secondly, it's possible that the first century Christians and you and I are the recipients of this. Paul is saying to them and to us, for your sake. Three, I think it's also possible that the first century church is saying this to you for your sake, <laughs> we're being killed. Think about it. If they had not endured that persecution, if they had not made so bold a claim for Jesus, it's possible that you and I don't know him today. It's possible that it, they said the blood of the martyrs is the spread of the gospel in that first century. Well, it's possible that that blood may not have been spilled, and you might not know the gospel today. They may have suffered for you to hear the gospel. Then look at verse 37. No, in all these things, we're more than conquerors. Through him who loved us. What does that mean? More than conquerors. I think that's unique. I mean, a conqueror is the ultimate, but this is more than conquerors. Does that seem strange to you? That well, it did to me. What does it mean? Well, when I was a kid, as a teenager, as an illustration, I loved football. My ultimate goal was to play in the NFL. I was a running back in high school, and I wanted to score on every play. And I didn't want to just score. I wanted to dance in the end zone because it meant a lot to Susie. And I was going to see her after the game. Uh, But the coach forbade it. Uh, By the way, at that time, you could celebrate. And the coach said, You are not going to do it. Why? Because you are going to act like you've been there. (laughs) Well, I really wanted to be more than a scorer. I wanted to be king of the school. You think I had an outrageous ego? It it may be. But I wanted to celebrate. So I think this is what this means. Jesus scored when he destroyed, conquered death. But he's even more than a conqueror. Philippians chapter 2 says that God, because of the cross, because of his humility, exalted him to the highest place, right? He reigns over everything. I think that's what this means. We are more than conquerors. Check out this verse, Revelation 20 and verse 6. How are you and I more than conquerors? How is it that we've conquered death in Christ and yet we're more? Look at this verse at the end of your New Testament, at the end of your Bible. We, it says, by the way, we are more than conquerors. And Revelation 20 verse 6 says, Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. He's speaking about you. And look at the last phrase. They will Reign with him, with Jesus. You and I will reign with Jesus. Not only is Jesus more than a conqueror, but when you see him, 1 John 3, 1 through 3, you're going to be like him. You're going to reign with me. <laughs> more than a conqueror. Then look at the second half of that verse. We're not only more than conquerors, but we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. He loved us, Paul says. What tense is that? There's a verb to love. He says we're loved through the cross. What tense is that? You can yell it out. Uh, Megan is a an expert in grammar. Where are you, Megan? Past. 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 And believe me, she lets you know it. Past. It's past tense. Hebrews 10.14 says, By one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. That's you. The scriptures say he remembers our sin no more. Because it's past, it's past for all of us. And check out Romans 6. We've read this 2 chapters ago. And I remind you of it. Romans 6:10 says the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. What is the tense of the verb to die? You can be, you don't have to be afraid to say it, Joe. Past. That's what it is. <laughs> I want to illustrate something for you. Imagine this line that where the ceiling meets the wall is the line of time. You and I are stuck in time and space. You can't get out of it. You live in an experience of four dimensions. By the way, the astrophysicists tell us we know that there is black holes and there are worm tunnels. And the only way they can explain it is that there are as many as 8 to 11 dimensions to our universe. But you're stuck in this. (laughs) You're stuck in this. Now, God created time, right? All things were created by him. So imagine this. You and I right now are in God's perspective. Do you see the line that everyone's stuck inside of? Well, imagine you have this perspective. You're infinite in dimension, right? You can see it all now. Is that cool? This is why (laughs) in Exodus chapter 2, Moses asks the burning bush, Who should I say sent me? You know, I'm going to the most powerful man in the world. Who should I say sent me? And God answers through that bush. I am that I am. Tell them, tell him, I am sent you. That's bad grammar, Megan. That's bad grammar. Or he's trying to describe something. Now he is now. He is now. Your past, he's already seeing you that way. Because Jesus died, he died to sin once for all. But then, notice, lives. But the life he lives, he lives to God. What tense is that? Now, this is a difficult question. Because... I'll not embarrass you. Because this verb is in both the present and future tense at the same time. That's how the Hebrews would use this word life. Life. So you live, you always will especially from God's perspective. Look back to uh, Romans 8 and verse 30 when you get a chance. He says that you're not only justified by Jesus' cross, but you're glorified. That's past tense, too. And he's speaking of your future salvation when you get to heaven, glory, glorification. And yet he speaks of it in past tense because this is God's perspective. Now, you're done. This is done. We are fighting fear in our world. And here's the answer. 1 John 4, 8. God is love. Now, think about the attributes of God. And you understand that this love, God's love, is unlimited. Right? That's the perspective not the one we're stuck in. The second list, the second list is about fighting fear in the next world. Verse 38, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor present things nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's really scary. That's a list of really scary things. When I was in high school, I was, again, a weird kid. I listened to Jasmine's favorite. Um, I listened to the Bill Gaither trio. I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. It was for somebody in the 70s. Mm-hmm. And I went up to my room to play vinyl, a vinyl album, which I knew the first song was, I'm so glad I'm a boy. Bill and Gloria Gaither. Well, I put the needle down and I watched as it made its way to the first little groove, meaning the first song, And this is what I heard. And I freaked out. I was sure (laughs) that a demon was possessing my record player. And I was just about to pick it up and smash it on the ground. When I realized it was on the radio, I had been listening to classical radio, WOSU, earlier in the day, forgot to turn it off of the radio, and they were playing, it was this time of year, it was Halloween, they were playing experimental music. (laughs) But the other world is terrifying. Mark chapter 4 that is at the end of the chapter that's the chapter in which jesus calms the sea before he calms the sea they think the apostles they think they're going to drown right do you think they were afraid absolutely they were afraid they're going afraid they're going to die then jesus calms the sea Which means they saw him do something otherworldly, supernatural. And guess what the next verse says, verse 41. It says, they were terrified. Why? Because they realized they've seen something from the other world, right? This is a really scary list. When fighting fears in the next world, remember who God is. He's love. And so, you can answer with his attribute of love. His love is unconditional, right? And then, I need to say something about the last word on the list, the second list. Nor anything else in all of creation. I'm so happy that's there. Because I've learned to say over the years, when I get to that place, nor anything else in all creation, he's named everything, but nothing in all of creation, I take a big sigh and I say, not even me. I wonder if you have a similar experience. I wonder, even as children of God, well, let me tell you this. I am 62. So I've got 17 years on Scott, whatever that means. I've been serving Jesus for 40 years. I've known him for 51 years. And somewhere along the way, I realized I was making big mistakes, like sinning. And in my mind, I was thinking even worse things, right? I'm trusting you have the same experience. So, and by the way, when I was a teenager, I thought, By the time I had 40 years in, I would be a self-disciplined sage. You know what I mean? I don't know if some of you that are older in Christ have had the same thought, but when you were younger, did you dream that, oh, I'm going to be so self-disciplined? Right? But here's my experience, and Scott mentioned this last week. The Holy Spirit's in me. And the Holy Spirit grieves over sin. And over the years, I've gotten to know my sin like no other time before. Increasingly so. And I've, especially from time to time, and I'll tell you, it's even often. I doubt my salvation. So I thought... We should talk about a defense against doubt, doubting your salvation. What to do when you doubt? I've got a few suggestions. One, confess. Confess. They say the acts of your prayer life, A, C, T, S. I think confession should be first, so I say the cats of your prayer life confess confess start by confessing whatever sin it is that's got you doubting confess it and remember first john one eight through nine if we confess our sins he's faithful and just to forgive us for our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness confess your sin and then right after you do that confess the sin of doubt He's made it everywhere present. He's made it everywhere known in his word, his promises. You are his child. You've crossed over from death to life. You're born again. You have eternity in front of you. When you see him, you will be like him, glorified, and you won't sin ever again. So confess that you're doubting. And then move to A, adoring him. Just let yourself worship God in your mind. By the way, this is all mind speak, self-talk. And T, thank him for saving you. Thank him for the gospel. One more time. And then supplication or your requests. Ask the holy spirit who is inside you for help to overcome this doubt. And then I want you to remember four other things. Remember who you are. Look at Romans 8:27. Right here in this chapter. Who are you? Well, the spirit intercedes for the saints. Do you realize you are a saint? Already, before you knew Jesus, you were a sinner and all you could do was sin. But now you are a saint in the future. You're going to be a saint reigning with Christ and you'll never sin again. But right now you are a saint that sins. Look at first John eight. In fact, If you claim to be without sin, you deceive yourself. The truth isn't in you. You and I, brothers in Christ and sisters in Christ, we sin. Remember who you are. Then remember who you are up against. Look at John 15, 18. John 15, 18. If the world hates you, Jesus speaking, keep in mind it hated me first. This world, 1 John 5.19, this is not a fun memory verse. 1 John 5.19 says, the whole world is under the control of the evil one, Satan. We gave him that control of this world when we sinned, In Adam, right from the start, the whole world is under the control of the evil one. In other words, this world is constantly talking at you. And of course you would doubt your salvation. And look at 1 Peter 5.8. Who are you up against? Well, be alert and sober-minded. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. (laughs) You're up against someone who's been around for thousands of years and knows us very well. Knows you better than you know yourself. So, what have we been saying? God's love if you're fighting the fears of things in you, remember that God is love, and God's love is unchanging. I don't know if you've thought about this, but there are things. This is going to sound strange. There are things that God cannot do. You ever thought about that? He can't be inconsistent with himself. The scriptures say he cannot lie. Neither can he promise something that will not be fulfilled. No. He's unlimited, unconditional, and unchanging. That's the answer to all our fears. Nothing can separate you or me from Jesus. Now, I've got to make one last statement. That would be the end of this sermon but but uh some of us some of us don't know Jesus yet, some of us haven't placed our faith in him we you haven't crossed over from death to life. you haven't been born again now, friend I'd just like to say to you, if you're here, if you're on the other side from us, an outsider to understanding this kind of love, um, I'm suggesting to you that you avoid, you're avoiding reality. Think about it. You are going to die. It's imminent. And time flies. (laughs) You don't know when. The Bible says God has your appointment. And it could happen anytime. I've been through open heart surgery, as many of you know. Kind of scary. But it's flying by. And it's the older I get, the more I know it's flying by. So here's what I want to say to you. Here's reality. In your heart of hearts, friend, you're even inclined to believe that this isn't it, be honest. You know that nothing's going to happen after you die. (laughs) And in the depths of your heart and soul, you understand there's a God. And, well, you can't deny it. And, You know in your heart and soul that he must be ultimate love. And you're waiting to hear, on the other side of that experience that ends it all, you're waiting to hear, Welcome home. (laughs) Because you're looking for true love. You need to become a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone and the new is here. Well, God is love. So God's love is unconditional, unlimited, unmerited. And I thought about making a joke here about immortality because that will never get old. Did you hear it? But I'm not going to do it. Instead, I'm going to pray, Lord Jesus, for that person that may be here that doesn't know you, here's, here's it in a nutshell. Say from your heart, that's all prayer is, say from your heart, Jesus, I believe you died for my sins, all of them, past, present, and future. And I believe you rose from the dead, proved you were God and able to do it. Right now, by faith, I ask you into my life. I want to cross over from life to death. I want your spirit to indwell me. I want to learn what it is to love you. In Jesus' name, amen.